the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. You know, it's uh, very disappointing on days like today. Welcome, by the way, to another edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts here with you to keep you company for the next couple of hours here on the Tuesday edition for the 22nd of September. And disappointing, as I say, on days like today when there's so little going on in the news, it's difficult to really decide how to keep folks engaged. And so I've got golfing tips here. I've got I've got a list of chocolate chip cookie recipes I'll share with you. <laughs> yeah, boy. It's difficult to know where to begin. So we're going to start at the top today. A little bit later on, we're going to move into um, some critical public policy debate. Pete Peterson from Pepperdine University is going to join us um, as we are trying to work our th- way through the disaster of the West Coast wildfires that has consumed three, three and a half million acres and uh, thousands of buildings destroyed. And unfortunately, also with significant loss of life, the question of climate change and how we deal with these fires is uh, front and center. Um, The question is, of course, between can we afford to deal with this or can we afford not to? Pete Peterson will join us for that public policy discussion a little bit later later on in today's program. Uh, Meanwhile, to a more pressing topic, it's um, five weeks away from the election, something like that. And we are facing one of the most challenging election cycles, certainly of my lifetime, not only in terms of questions of how do we pull this off in the day and age of COVID-19 and all the debates swirling about the security of the elections and whether or not the post office is capable of handling the crush of absentee ballots and things of this sort. Well, if it wasn't exciting enough for you, a week ago, we certainly ramped things up pretty significantly on Friday with the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that probably not altogether was unexpected given her many health challenges over the last uh, two or three years. Uh, But this has added certainly a dynamic of complexity to this election cycle that we've not seen, as I say, certainly in my lifetime. So we're going to spend some time talking about all of this. And we're joined by a constitutional authority who I'm sure hell, uh, had much to say about this last Sunday and will on his program this Sunday as well. Heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area on our sister station, 860 AM, The Answer. He is the host of the syndicated talk show, The Bob Zadek Show. Heard every Sunday morning. Information available on the web at Bob com. And Robert, as always, a delight and an education to have you Join us. Wow. So what a difference 
um, the passing of a Supreme Justice can make. It's always sort of fascinating when events of this sort take place, and there is, of course, uh, all of the discussion about who the president will pick, what the process of confirmation will look like, whether or not the person will be uh, confirmed or will um, sort of devolve into uh, a a big major debate. And uh, certainly this is going to turn out to be undoubtedly the debate of the season. Part of it, of course, um, largely attributable to comments that were made by members of the Senate, in some cases a scant couple of years ago, that, well, potentially may not impact their ability to place their own vote in the confirmation of the next pick for the U.S. Supreme Court may be problematic for those who insisted a year or two ago that we not hold a vote if it is close to the election time and allow the president come the new year, whomever that may be, uh, to make that choice. And I have to almost wonder whether or not for those that are also coincidentally up for re-election this year, like Lindsey Graham, whether or not their words will come back and bite them. First, let's sort of work through the constitutionality of all of this. It is to the president to select members of the Supreme Court. It is to the Senate to um, confirm or send them packing. That much we know. I guess it's the big question of whether or not it's even appropriate for this to happen, not just in an election year, but so close to the election. What say ye? Well, first of all, I'd like to compliment you on your editorial judgment of allowing a discussion on the future of our country to elbow out chocolate chip cookie recipes. Uh, I think uh, (laughs) kudos to you and to your producing staff, because I think you made the right call. I'm also relieved because I don't have much to add about uh, chocolate chip cookies, except that I love them, especially with cold milk. But we have bigger fish to fry to keep the food analogy going, uh, which is the Supreme Court. So uh, it, this whole issue, when it happened, and it happened very quickly with uh, the passing of RBG, um, but it, it happened, and the issues are so complex, it makes 3D chess look like Chinese checkers, or maybe even American checkers. It is so complex with so many moving parts. Uh, But I would just like to comment that you mentioned in your very thorough opening introduction, one of the points you mentioned is that you wondered out loud whether or not the comments made by Lindsey Graham and many other elected officials uh, will come back to haunt them since um, both the Democrats and the Republicans are now required to take 180-degree different positions than they took two years ago or four years ago or eight years ago. And um, there's been a lot of ink and sound spread in the media about the utter hypocrisy at all of it all and i find any discussion of the hypocrisy of elected officials is a total waste of time well of course they don't mean what they say they are re-election machines we are past the point regretfully in our history that we can expect good faith out of our elected officials, um, uh, especially especially those elected 
to the legislature, and especially those elected to the federal legislature, Congress and the Senate. They have uh, institutionally long since passed the point that they serve as an active check or balance on the other branches of the government. Uh, they exist, they being the elected officials, only to get reelected. I made a decision. I used to be pretty active as best I could in supporting those candidates for legislature that I thought represented views close to my own. I have made a decision a while ago to never, never, as long as there's life in my body, ever contribute even one penny to anybody running for the legislature because they will invariably break your heart and disappoint you. And to help them further their own career when there's no benefit to me, I just have written off, regretfully, the legislature. So that I find it not worthy of discussion um, doing these gotchas of quoting Lindsey Graham and all the others when they take contrary positions. Uh, and there's more at stake than just yet another embarrassing statement by a federal or state elected legislator. What's at stake is many of the political norms that appear to have served us well, political norms such as the number of Supreme Court justices, we may be discussing court packing, kind of a scary concept, which, Craig, we may get into, who knows, in this next half hour. Uh, we have that norm. We have the norm of the filibuster, uh, which, as you know, the filibuster rule exists in the United States Senate. And under the filibuster rule, basically, you need a supermajority uh, to confirm Supreme Court justices. That is uh, 60, 60 votes uh, and a 60-vote majority for many pieces of legislation. It is an unsmall-D democratic body. It is done to protect minorities. Well, that norm, the norm of the filibuster, is likely to disappear. And with that, uh, we lose the checks and balances of the Supreme Court against the unconstitutional acts of the legislature. And we, uh, we lose the ability of the minority in the Senate to have any say whatsoever. There's no sense of them even showing up. So a lot of norms, whether or not, uh, 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 whether or not they should disappear, they have served us well, these norms. And I say they're norms because they're not built into the Constitution, and in many cases, uh, simply a matter of statute or just of practice. So it's not like they cannot be changed. But when norms serve us well, they ought to be changed not as a way of the exercise of raw political power, but for some good, uh, good of the country reason. So that's the real danger. Um, we're about to go down a slope, and we can discuss whether or not that means that Trump ought to carry through on the uh, nomination of a justice, and if he does, whether or not the Senate should hold a confirmation vote. Um, before the new Senate takes office in January, and if they shouldn't hold a constitutional, if they shouldn't hold a vote, should they vote to confirm and send it to the, to the full Senate? We have all of these issues um, with corresponding threats, which also we may get into, where uh, if, this, if the Senate, the Republican Senate, does what it threatens, if threat is the right word, 
than the Republic, the Democrats, if and when they take power with a Democratic president, if and when that happens, they will enforce their will on the minority. So there's so much at stake. There's, uh, I think uh, it's an interesting discussion as to what the president should do and why and what the consequences are and whether those consequences are good or bad for the country as a whole. That's what the country will be watching happen between now and January 20th of next year. The, the one word that comes to mind, Bob, and we can get into this deeper after a quick time out here, is the word consequences. Now, certainly, as you alluded to, uh, there really isn't going to be, I think, any, any benefit to an investment of our time in talking about the, the myriad of uh, contradictory statements made by members of the United States Senate. Um, they will do what they feel they need to do for the sake of not the country, at least of the party, and in doing so may or may not suffer the consequences at the ballot box uh, come November the 3rd. That said, and my big pressing concern, is the broader consequences of the fight that this could trigger that may lead to everything from the question of court packing, feeling as if we're a bit reminiscent of FDR from uh, 80-something years ago and what all of the potential uh, consequences of that might mean, up to and including, and let's, uh, let's talk about this as well, and that is the notion of, let's say that the president does in fact go through with the nomination, and the nomination is confirmed, and come January we have not just a new court, but potentially, too, the other problem of um, a newly appointed member of the court that may be, if this is a repeat performance to any degree of what happened in 2000, the need for the same United States Supreme Court to weigh in on a decision related to the outcome of the election, as we see all the talk about whether or not that's going to be rigged, whether or not the vote's going to be counted properly, so on and so forth, and, of course, so what, what the potential fallout or consequences of all of that could mean. With us today is Bob Zadek, host of the syndicated talk show, The Bob Zadek Show, heard locally in the San Francisco Bay Area every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. Information about Bob's program available online at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. Dot com. We are talking about the new Supreme Court vacancy. There are questions of constitutionality, which are easily answered. There are also questions of the tradition or the norms, as Bob referred to a moment ago. And there are questions of the potential consequences of a variety of actions related to all of this. We'll get into that aspect of the conversation as the Tuesday edition of Lifeline continues with Bob Zadek right after this update on traffic. Here at 520, let's get you an update. We'll head right over to the KFAX Traffic Center for the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
setting aside for the moment debates over inconsistency and trust issues between Democrats, Republicans, and and uh, the the real and or perceived inconsistency of all of this, uh, it is at the end of the day constitutionally up to the president to appoint Supreme Court nominees and for the United States Senate to either confirm or deny. Um, whether or not there is a tradition, there is consistency, there is norm in doing so, so close to an election um, will be perhaps a, a, a question to pose to history. But the deeper and broader one I want to pose to Bob Zadek, host of the Bob Zadek Show, is simply this, Robert, and that is the potential um, unintended consequences. So let's say, for example, that part of the rush to judgment here um, in getting a Supreme Court nominee confirmed before the election is a fear that the president may lose his reelection, and this may be, at least for a season, uh, a final opportunity to put a more conservative justice on the high court. That part I get. The concern, of course, is that if you have Democrats that gain any traction in the Senate come January and a new president seated at Pennsylvania Avenue come January, whether or not there could be retaliatory actions taking place, not least of which you alluded to, the notion of court packing, and how problematic could this suddenly become if there is some contest related to the election that places it before the high court and suddenly you have somebody that within the last 30 days, say, had been nominated and selected by the president and now the outcome of the president's uh, future in the White House is going to in part be decided by a member of that Supreme Court. How problematic are these two potential scenarios in your mind? Craig, you have just asked the mother of all compound questions. I would have to take over the station at gunpoint and not let anybody else broadcast for the rest of the night while I answered your question. I hope you're prepared for that bit of unpleasantness, which is the only way I could answer your question. But to break it down, I'll do the best that I can um, to break down your question. First of all, um, the president does have have a duty as well as the power to nominate a a justice. Second of all, you mentioned that if in the cause and effect, unintended consequences, is that likely to result in the Democrats, if they get control of both the Senate and the presidency, whether that would cause them to pack the court? I think that's an easy question. Here's why it's easy. First of all, if Trump doesn't nominate another justice, uh, he will lose, he will profoundly disappoint his base, and he has no chance of being, he will not pick up any votes, and he'll lose a lot of votes, and it means he'll not get reelected, in my opinion. Second of all, whether or not the president nominates, whether or not the Senate confirms, of course the Democrats will pack the court. Why wouldn't they? If they have the power, if they control the Senate, and they get rid of the filibuster, which they will, and they have the presidency, what in God's name would discourage them from packing the court? They, they will be confronting, they will be looking at, if Trump's nomination is confirmed, a 6-3 
conservative, if that's a right label. It probably isn't, because I don't know that that uh, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, qualifies as a conservative. Probably yes, but it's a little hard to predict. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt, and it's 6-3. Or if Trump doesn't nominate a justice or a justice doesn't get confirmed, there's still a 5-4 or close to it conservative majority. So even at 5-4, I dare say the the Democrats would pack the court, because why shouldn't they? So I say to think for one second that Trump's, that the confirmation of another conservative justice will cause the Democrats to pack the court is, is sophistry. Of course, that will not be the cause. They will pack the court like Clinton and Monica. Why? Because they can. That's why they will pack the court. So packing the court is a done deal, in my opinion, if the Democrats get the Senate and the presidency. So there's no cause and effect. Therefore, Trump has, and the conservatives have, very low risk in going through with the nomination and confirmation of the Supreme Court justice. They have low risk. Then it will be up to the Democrats. If Trump does go through with it, and we have a 6-3 Supreme Court, then perhaps if, if, if you are and I am conservative or libertarian, then we look forward to a pretty unpleasant two-year period at least with the Democrats in control of three branches of Congress. They may or may not pack the court, uh, but the best we can hope for is they pack the court in 2022, the reaction to packing the court is the Democrats get thrown out, uh, and then we're back to uh, status quo ante, more or less. So I see Trump has almost no risk in nominating a justice that will satisfy us and satisfy him and his constituency. I don't think I think it's low risk because what the Democrats threaten to do, they will do in any event. Uh, and also, the Supreme Court is far and away held in the highest regard of all of the three branches of the federal government. Far and away, they are held in the highest regard. I think they enjoy lots of goodwill uh, in the country. And I think packing the court could very well be perceived by the country as the Democrats messing with the most trusted institution, and taking away its validity. Because once you pack the court, it's stacking the deck, and now you clearly make the Supreme Court clearly an instrument of partisan politics. And I think the voting public may very well say, don't mess with our court, and would punish the Democrats if they messed with the Supreme Court. It's only my opinion, but it's another thing to consider. And Craig... There's another consideration that I have observed that I haven't seen anybody else write about, and maybe I'll say yet, because I'm sure it will be written about. But let's remember, Craig, let's remember when Clarence Thomas was nominated to serve on the Supreme Court, he was pilloried by the then chair of the Judiciary Committee, Biden. 
Remember what Biden did to Clarence Thomas. Don't you wonder if there will be a movement that if the election of the presidency is into the Supreme Court, whether there will be pressure on Clarence Thomas to recuse himself? And remember, Mm. the decision on recusing yourself is personal to the justice. It's not a question that can be imposed upon him. And I wonder how that dynamic of Clarence Thomas, who I'm sure does not forget for one second the mistreatment he suffered at the hands of Joe Biden. He's sitting there participating in a discussion on whether Biden gets to be president. That is the stuff that Academy Award movies are made of, and nobody has written about that. Well, you've just added a, a interesting little dynamic twist to uh, the second part of my question, and that is this notion that what if this comes down to a contestant election, the outcome of which is then forced no, before not the high if, court? It, it no doubt will. So on the assumption that the odds tell us that it's likely to become a contested election. So let's start with that premise and now ask your question. Now, with a contested election, let's say that somebody like Justice Thomas does recuse himself, there is going to be, and I understand as you point out, legally you cannot compel a justice. Legally, a justice cannot be compelled, but it would put potentially uh, the the most recent member, be it uh, Amy Barrett or whomever, in a very awkward position where suddenly you're being called upon to render a decision in a case involving the guy that just gave you your permanent job. How problematic could that be from a political standpoint? Um, well, when you say problematic, I happen to have and maybe because my day job is I practice law, I happen to have faith in appellate courts, not particularly in trial courts, but in appellate courts, on their wisdom, on their adherence to the rule of law. So I actually, while the Supreme Court is human beings, and therefore the decision-making is, of course, far from perfect. Perfect is not the standard. Uh, we simply want integrity, but I have—I am not concerned at all about the quality of the deliberation in the Supreme Court. I am concerned about how the public will perceive it, and the Supreme Court may lose some of its legitimacy. Uh, it might, if there's a hue and cry, and the and the uh, chattering media gets a hold of it, it makes a big deal about it, and the public who doesn't understand how the court actually works will be drawn into the debate. But in terms of the quality of the outcome, I am highly confident, even though the Supreme Court, of course, has had very bad decisions. In general, I trust the institution of the Supreme Court. The problem, of course, that will complicate this will be not necessarily any decision made by the high court, but rather by the reaction of its citizenry, our citizenry. Um, and and this could be queuing up part. to be... That's, that's yeah. the scary part. We saw what happened with George Floyd. Imagine what happens when the media starts to stir up the public unless 50 governors and thousands of mayors commit to have a massive 
show of force to snuff out the violence, that is, Craig, I was hoping I wouldn't even have it be asked to speak about it. That is my greatest fear for what's going to happen in the streets when there is, to begin with, a, a reduced level of respect for the rule of law and for the police, and then something which is nationwide, nationwide, something happens, whether it's in the Supreme Court or in the mess up with the ballots or in the mere operation of government. We can't pick a president by the constitutional deadline of January 20th. We just can't get it done. And what will happen? I fear for the country in that eventuality. I almost pray for a landslide one way or the other, so there's nothing to fight about. But my goodness, Craig, am I afraid? Yeah, and and I think with uh, with just cause. It's been long on this program. We've talked about the looming culture wars. Little did I expect when we first began broaching that topic almost 30 years ago that it might potentially turn into literally just that, a war. Bob Zadek will no doubt have more to say on this topic on his program Sunday. And of course, uh, I think we're going to be talking to Bob a lot over the coming weeks here as we head into what is uh, easily going to be uh, the most hotly contested election of our lifetimes. Bob Zadek shows Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. Check out the program, podcast, other resources, including Bob's most recent book, Secret Sauce, the Founder's Original Recipe for Limited American Democracy, all available, pardon me, all available to you online at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Yeah, a lot to be fearful for, a lot to be praying about, undoubtedly. 538 from KFAX. Let's get a look at traffic for you right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We sort of quietly today passed a very dark milestone as the number of deaths in the United States due to COVID-19 now pretty much equal that of the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and World War I casualties combined. And with that sobering reality that we're still struggling to try to wrap our minds around, it also begs another question, and that is that how do we go about finding some sense of normalcy to life that with all of this death around us, life for the living continues? And, of course, we're all, I think, desperate for some sense of normalcy between wanting kids to go back to school, all of us to be back at work instead of working remotely, and to be back to church and enjoy a normal Sunday morning worship service that we have done for so much of our lives. Of course, the big challenge there has been the inconsistency of regulations metered out by local municipalities, by counties, certainly by the state, and from state to state. Most recently, we've been reporting on North Valley Baptist Church of Santa Clara, whom, as you know, said, you know, there's a time when we have to admit and recognize that uh, we are, too, as a church, an essential service, and essential to encouraging people of faith by being able to attend a worship service. Well, the... Um, 
County of Santa Clara stepped in and said, no, not so fast, and in doing so, uh, levied some pretty serious fines against the church. And we get an update now on the status from constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, counselor. This has been a tough one because, as I point out, we want to do all that we can to try and mitigate the tragic loss of life, but there are certain other realities here of day-to-day living that we cannot ignore, and yet it seems as if some of the most uh, severe penalties um, for quote-unquote non-compliance are being levied against some of the organizations that are least of which in a position to not only bear the amount of, of fine, but it's not as if they were trying to do something crazy like, you know, hold a big community dance. They're trying to meet spiritual needs of their congregation members. And I understand that most recently, um, Valley Baptist, I guess in a sense, a little bit is, has waved the, the white flag here, and perhaps understandably so, facing more than $100,000 in fines. Give us an update. Yeah, this uh, church, Valley Baptist, you know, was fined uh, $52,750, uh, you know, nine days from, for far as for going to church, for people uh, having an indoor service, and then an additional 50000 being fined weekly. Uh, Santa Clara County, I would have to say, is probably one of the most uh, vicious, uh, aggressive counties when it comes to uh, tolerance towards churches and and uh, accommodating uh, their convictions and their their needs and the needs of their community that they're they're serving. Uh, that said, um, that they did what they did, and uh, this church was uh, in a very you know in a corner. Uh, you know they couldn't you can't they couldn't afford that kind of a of a burden, so uh, they uh, agreed uh, to uh, negotiate and agreed uh, with the as an agreement with the uh, Santa Clara County has reported that uh, they will uh, have outdoor services, um, uh, and uh, with that um, is an expected uh, waiver uh, of their penalties, um, and uh, that is you know probably the best that they could hope for right now dealing with Santa Clara County. Uh, but that's just that's what's been reported, and I have not seen any the actual uh, documents or settlements, uh, anything like that. Uh, let me let me perhaps bring front and center uh, the obvious, and that is that it's one thing for the church to say, "Okay, we we surrender. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna wipe us off the map financially if we have to continue to bear the burden of all of these penalties." Um, so the the option then becomes to hold church outdoors. Um, which they apparently did this past weekend. Here's the short-sightedness in all of that, and that is that that might be not a bad idea, the smoke of the fires notwithstanding, for the next four weeks, six weeks maybe. But we're here closing in on the end of September. What happens when we're closing in, Counselor, on the end of October, and the notion of being able to hold an outdoor worship service becomes prohibitive because of the thing called rain and winter weather and heading into the fall season and so forth. Uh, has the county even thought through the consequences for every organization that it insists meet outside and what that's going to look like in 30 days? Yeah, apparently they, they haven't. Uh, or they are expecting uh, the uh, county and, and these, in these counties in their areas to 
go down uh, from, say, purple or red down to orange. And uh, based on the governor's standards, if you have orange, like, for example, Orange County is expected to become orange, ironically, um, next week. And three other three counties went orange. I think of Northern California, El Dorado County, Nevada County, and another county. Uh, when that happens, then churches can have indoor services up to 50% of their capacity. Um, but needless to say, this is speculative. It's uncertain. Uh, we had so many churches uh, we, we heard about that were written up for having an indoor services when the, the air, when it was very, very hot outside uh, and unhealthy hot, and the air was unhealthy for everyone, even people who have lung conditions. And so this, uh, this, this mindset is very is bureaucratic, totalitarian mindset that we've, we've seen can be very unreasonable and actually dangerous uh, to the welfare of people that they're in charge of regulating and, and who's helped they're in charge of uh, protecting. A final question, Counselor. Has there, to your knowledge, been any effort by the state or the counties to sit down with the very people whose decisions have such significant consequences and say, let's sit down, come and reason together and see if we can broker an agreement here that satisfies everybody, that deals with the health concerns that the county is promoting, the spiritual concerns that these churches are promoting, and, and come up with some kind of a, a working framework here. Uh, to your knowledge, is any of that happening, or is this all sort of being handed down in a vacuum from the ivory tower? Yeah, oh, it's definitely, definitely happening on a wide scale um, in red states. Uh, they where you have church services, indoor services. This last Sunday, I came back from uh, First Baptist of Dallas, and I spoke there in the evening uh, gathering, and uh, they were there, and uh, they have t- tremendous freedom. But as far as California, we're dealing with an ivory tower, and it's and it's so un- unfortunate, especially when you realize that California, that not all the states are ivory towers. There's other states that are doing just fine. The recovery rate is. An improvement rate is just as good, if not better, and yet they have been having a, a different policy, uh, allowing more freedom and liberty and respect for religious institutions as truly an essential part of their communities. Uh, depression is increasing dramatically. Uh, the new studies have, are coming out extremely alarming. Suicide rate is up, it's spiking very high. Um, divorce rate is up by more than a third in just one year. Uh, so we're we're seeing uh, domestic violence. We're seeing a lot of consequences to this, in addition to health and, and other issues, because of this extreme abuse of power by the governor and by counties in particular that are uh, really not being responsible, looking at the whole picture to the health and, and welfare and liberties of their uh, communities. Yeah, we're we're really lining up, as I've indicated uh, repeatedly on this program, for the most critical election of our lifetime because of the consequences of things like this and those that we place in Washington, in Sacramento, in the the city hall, or even on the school board become so critically important. There's an update for you from Brad Dacus. From the Pacific Justice Institute, more information available on the web at pacificjustice.org. 5.52, let's get you an update on traffic. The latest now from the KFAX Traffic Center.
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It may appear as if I sort of hammer away at certain topics uh, to the point of being irritating, which I, I, I suppose guilty as charged, only largely because there are certain topics that are so critical, and we're seeing this played out on the stage at so many levels in our country today, that it is incumbent upon all thinking people, praying people, people that are actively involved in in a sense of pride, of ownership of their country, um, to to be aware of some of these issues, many of which fall squarely in the arena of public policy. Uh, Let's take, for example, the shared experience that we've all been going through, the tragedy of the fires Here in California and the West Coast, three and a half million acres have been destroyed. We've seen seven of the 20 worst fires in recorded history occur just in the last four months. And of course, against the backdrop of how do we respond, how do we deal with all of this, there are so many questions related to climate change, control over energy, My goodness, if it isn't bad enough in California that we uh, struggle to keep the lights on because of the so-called public safety power shutdowns, add to that too much heat and the strain on the electrical system that can barely handle current capacity, let alone increased demand because of, in many respects, a very short-sighted, disjointed public policy approach to these questions. To give us more insight to this equation, we're joined by Pete Peterson. Pete, of course, is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy and um, serves as a senior fellow as well at the Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University. And my goodness, Pete, I mean, this has got to keep some policy experts up at night, trying to ascertain how do we go about dealing with the terror of the fires that have ravaged so much of California over the last couple of months, along with the desire to want to balance things such as our energy use, the kinds of fuels that we utilize, and and demands, quite frankly, that perhaps altruistic in nature, but tend to be very short-sighted when it comes to how we go about addressing many of these critical questions today. No, you're so right, Craig, and great to be back with you. Uh, The I've often told friends who live outside of California that the great things about California were made by God. And now and back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Several of the things you ticked off, the bad things about California are man-made. And so many of the challenges that we face here in this state, especially around these fires, you mentioned the nexus of really two sets of issues. One is our energy creation policy one that has uh, forced us to uh, get more energy from so-called renewable sources, all toward the goal of reducing greenhouse gases, which has resulted in um, not only uh, energy costs that are double the national average, um, but at the same time has at least played somewhat of a role in uh, the fires that we're seeing, which, of course, are contributing greenhouse gases to the atmosphere of a scale and scope that we have 
never seen before. Um, and so the, the land management, the forestry management policies, which again are also tied to uh, the environmental issues that are connected to how we purchase and, and generate our energy um, all contribute to a California that's more dangerous and more expensive to live in. And, you know, we, we used to have a reasonable policy that said going through, I'm not talking about clear-cutting, but going through and thinning out some forest, getting rid of uh, potentially dangerous older wood um, was just sort of part of the norm. And then in the last 30 years, there was this paradigm shift um, where conservatism from the standpoint of, of conservationism, rather, from the standpoint of forest management, uh, just suddenly shifted from Let's go through, we'll allow a logging company to take advantage of certain sections and thin things out to completely outlawing any of that. And I think part of this has become now the consequences of that, that short-sighted public policy. And, you know, I have to laugh when you put a spare the air day in place during the summer and tell Californians, you may not barbecue outside don't mow the lawn because yeah. your single-stroke engine is going to contribute to um, greenhouse gases that will be so problematic for our environment. And then on the other hand, look, as, as you point out, what's happened over the last six to eight weeks. And I, 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 could, I, could, I, could, <laughs> I could barbecue every night, all night for the rest of my life <laughs> and not be able to come anywhere near the amount of pollution that has been spewed into the air in California over the last several weeks. And, and sadly, you know, even, even with, again, the sort of supposedly well-intentioned attempt at controlling some of this, there's a thing, for example, cap and trade. Always fascinated me yeah. that we say we must put limits on the amount of pollution that we put into the air, but if you're a major manufacturer and in the process of your business you create pollution... Uh, we're going to allow you to buy credits that will continue to allow you to pollute. You've got to write a big check for the privilege, but we'll allow you to do that. Now, is, is, that, is it me, or does that seem to be a very short-sighted policy? No, it is, Craig. And again, you, you're, you're putting your finger on a couple different things that I think are worth uh, considering separately. One is the, the forestry management piece, and we are woefully behind the curve when it comes to clearing the forest, control burns, things that are happening around the world. I mean, these are concepts around forestry management and reducing the chances that you could see these massive fires. And just as you say, nine of the last ten, nine of the top ten largest fires in state history have happened in the last eight years. And this is these have been these fires have started from a number of different sources and causes. Obviously, the ones we've seen this year, the ones on the central coast, uh, have been precipitated by uh, lightning strikes. But we've also seen gender reveal parties and pyrotechnics starting them. I mean, they're they're starting for a variety of reasons. But the land has been prepared over years of mismanagement for these massive fires. Uh, which, again, even if we were just concerned about the environment, it really is a pay-me-now or pay-me-later 
type of policy prescription that we either do the controlled burns now around a couple hundred acres or we will be looking at fires in the tens of thousands of acres that are putting way more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere if that was really what you were caring about. And of course, the other piece is the electricity generation and that we are we are paying twice as much for our electric that we're now being told not to use, which I can't think of another product uh, in any sort of free market system where uh, a company begs us not to use the energy that we're paying twice as much for. But that's all, again, tied to these environmental policies that are driving up the cost of electricity in many cases. And, you know, ironically still, in a state like California, where so many of the gadgets that we plug in the wall that require electricity were invented here, (laughs) conceived of here, and then we turn around and say, oh, but wait, we need to turn off the lights. We don't have enough power generation capacity to cover the demand in the state of California. And I get the fact that, okay, we're trying to shut down coal-fired plants. We suddenly got great concern over the potential of another Three Mile Island event, so we decided that uh, clean power, like nuclear energy, was not a good idea. Um, and, And while it's great to say, let's replace it with renewable energy like sunlight or wind, There are limitations to the levels of power that can be generated by those means, and there suddenly becomes this crossover of what does it cost to produce it versus what you're practically able to to get out of the system. And so with all of this, it just seems as if there has been a great deal of public discussion related to greenhouse gases and trying to control uh, emission standards in California but very little, if any, discussion as to how we go about providing some balance here and being able to maintain a capacity in the state that allows people to enjoy their their residency here as, a, as opposed to suddenly feeling like they've moved to a third world country. You're so right, Craig. I would ask any of your listeners to take a look at the government website for the U.S. Energy Information Administration, E. EIA.gov, EIA.gov, and in that website, it's a great place to learn how much we're paying for our electricity versus other states, A, and how much excess capacity other states have. So I'll just throw out one comparison. We are paying more than twice for our electricity than the state of Texas is, but the state of Texas has twice the emergency electricity capacity that we do. Now, how does that happen? That happens because Texas is making much wiser decisions around its electricity generation. And I would just point out one other thing, Craig. The other thing that we should be paying for when we pay these high electricity bills is that for our electric companies to then be able to do the things that are necessary to retrofit power lines, to put in emergency shutoff uh, mechanisms that are necessary for reducing the possibility that power lines, which we've seen in the past and certainly your listeners have seen there in the Bay Area, 
uh, to reduce the chances that our power lines will either trigger or extend the impact of a fire. But if we're paying higher electricity costs just for renewables, then the monies that we're paying are not going into these emergency features that other states can use that are essentially meant to reduce the possibility that our electric lines will trigger or extend fires. So in so many ways, Craig, we are, we're just not getting what we paid for. And uh, whether, it's, whether it's housing or electricity or uh, what we're paying at the gas pump, I mean, we could just keep going down the line just to, to really get to the roots of what has been called this blue state model that you pay more in taxes, but at least you get more in services. We're paying more in electricity. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're not able to use the electricity, and it's making this all the more dangerous, a dangerous place to live in. It's just unsustainable. Yeah, and, and sadly, that notion of pay more but get more, that ship in California sailed so many yeah. decades ago. Uh, yeah, we're just beginning, I think, to see the real long-term impact and consequences of politically motivated decisions that look good on paper but are not really practical, short-sightedness of certain agendas and an unwillingness to, quite frankly, uh, look at problems with, with the desire towards creating solutions that will be reasonable and fair for everyone and still be able to maintain a modicum of a, of a standard of living in a state like California. I have friends, uh, other parts of the union, that when they hear you say, well, I'm sitting here at home waiting for them to turn the lights out, why is that? Well, because we don't have enough power uh, to to keep the air conditioning running, or we're being told they're going to turn the power off because they don't want to create a fire. They wonder what kind of a third world has the state of California become. And these yeah. are so many examples of significant public policy failures that makes not only this upcoming election so critically important, but but and and finally maybe a, a forward thinking word, uh, Pete, if you would toward those that hear these things and say, you know, I love California. In spite yeah. of our shortcomings and foibles, I think it's a great state. I've lived here my whole life, or my family has been here for uh, generations. I don't want to see this state slip off into oblivion and literally become the third world country that it seems to be headed toward. How can and should citizens be more involved in the public policy-making process? Well, of course, it starts at the ballot box, and we have some really important elections, not just at the presidential level, but I'm talking about ballot initiatives. I know you cover this quite a bit, Craig. Um, really up and down the ballot, uh, it starts with the vote. But then I really do believe it is imperative that Californians make the, get themselves informed about the cost that we're paying uh, for the lack of services. Um, you know, you said this before, the ship has sailed decades ago, but I don't think it's been until recently where Californians, friends of mine who've lived here, others who have moved away, have just said enough is enough. And I think this fire season, um, with these, uh, these power shutoffs, um, have really caused people to say, what 
what am I paying for here? And increasingly, other states, I, I don't know if you see the TV commercials where you are, Craig, but I'm seeing TV commercials down here in L.A. from the governor of South Dakota saying, move your business to South Dakota. And I have no doubt businesses are leaving, you know, and and so it's become just increasingly difficult to make the argument that the California dream is is something that you can realize here when we're seeing our middle income, lower income, who are, are paying, really bearing the brunt for these electricity costs and taxes and so forth, um, that they're leaving the state. And as I said at the top, these are man-made problems. And, uh, and we as Californians uh, can change that beginning at the ballot box. Absolutely. And, and then I would add to that, um, in addition to that, being educated, being an educated voter, and being involved in the process. Uh, you know, we, we need thinking people that are willing to run for school board and willing yeah. to be on the city council and make their way up the chairs, so to speak, and people that are that are sensitized to practical needs that can look at big picture and not just run at it with a, some sort of a preset uh, agenda in mind, but rather really want to do what is best for the sake of the whole, for the entire state and all of its families that reside here. And so being involved in certainly voting, as Pete Peterson mentioned, is key. And then, too, uh, coming through with the ability and willingness to get involved and make a difference. And whether that means that you run for school board or uh, take a course that teaches you about what public policy is, how to shape it, what the issues are, how to get policy moved through that can make significant positive change. Many of these uh, details, of course, are available through the uh, School of Public Policy there at Pepperdine University. And you can get more information if uh, you're a college student or uh, maybe wanting to return back to school or you have a student in your home that has shown some interest in wanting to help shape a better, brighter future for our state and our nation, then I invite you to check out the School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University. You can check them out online. Simply go to publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. And our thanks to the Dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, Pete Peterson, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. All right. 613. Boy, are we late for traffic at the top of the hour. <laughs> Let's get a look, see what's going on in the KFAX Traffic Center.